I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, and you're listening to the Insights Podcast, where we review important new business books. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Mauro Guillen, who is Professor of International Management at the Wharton School, who's just written a book which is already a bestseller, even though it only came out in August of last year, called 2030, How Today's Big Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. So welcome, Mauro, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for having me. Your book essentially goes through eight key trends and explains how these will interlock and reshape everything. I guess my first question, Maro, is that the the trends individually sound quite familiar. You have demographic transition, graying, rise of Asian middle class, rise of women, citizen climate change, rise of technology, and so on. In spite of that familiarity, you say that these trends are transformational. What might we be missing on some of the trends? Well, you're absolutely correct in that everybody has heard about population aging. Everybody has heard about the fact that now more women graduate from college and therefore they're making inroads into the uh, labor market. Everybody has heard about um, digital platforms or cryptocurrencies. But the point of the book is that all of these things are coinciding in time and that before the year 2030, hence the title, we will be going through tipping points in each of them. Also, the other, I think, really important part of the book uh, regarding these trends is that they force us to change our mindset. And that is really what I think is important, meaning that we cannot just continue to contemplate the trends as if uh, you know, they didn't really affect us. We're going to have to adapt and adjust to them big time. So let's talk more about tipping points, because one of the points you make in the book is that indeed these trends are not just about more of something that we already know about that is already happening. At a certain point, you get a inflection point and things become qualitatively different. I wonder whether you could pick one or two of your eight key trends and illustrate that idea for us. Take a look at uh, population trends. Imagine you have a coin in your hands. On one side, you have fewer babies as times go by. And on the other side of the coin, what you see is that we're living longer and longer and longer. So what are the implications of that? Well, by the year 2030, for the first time, we're going to have more grandparents than grandchildren in many countries in the world, beginning with Japan, then China, then Europe, and finally North America and the rest of the world. And uh, what do I mean by that? Well, each generation is smaller in numbers than the previous one. And whereas in the past, for example, talking about business and brands, most of them were paying attention to the younger generation of consumers. Now they will be foolish by the year 2030 not to think about the crowd about the age of 60 as the single most important segment of the market because it's going to be 30, 35, even 40% of the total. So you said that the trends are not just individual trends with tipping points. They actually interlock and have additive effects. Could you illustrate that idea? Could you take a couple of trends, two or three trends, and show how you put them together and you don't just have three trends, you have a different reality? Absolutely. So I, I would even say it's multiplicative, right? So these trends interact and they multiply each other in many ways, predictably, in other ways, unexpectedly. Two examples, very quick ones. I just gave you one, which is technology is making knowledge obsolete more quickly, but we're living longer. But we are still in this mindset in which first you play, then you learn, then you work, then you retire. So we're going to have to change that. In that particular example, you have an economic trend, you have a population trend, and you have a technological trend all of them interacting in multiplicative ways, I would say. Now, the other one is emerging markets. So in emerging markets, okay, they're growing. Well, that means the middle class is growing. They're developing their own consumer markets, which in turn will change the global economy. It's not going to be so much about emerging markets exporting to Europe and the United States, 
but rather about the dynamic in their domestic markets. By the year 2030, China will be the largest in the world, bigger than the U.S. A few years later, India will become even bigger than China. Well, once again, companies are going to have to pay attention to the Chinese consumer, whereas for the last 100 years, they've been designing and launching products or services with the American consumer in mind, right? Now, think about, of course, how geopolitical power will shift as a result of that. So once again, what we're seeing is that all of these trends are converging on one another, colliding, as I, the title of the book says, and producing a very different situation. In that collision of trends, I guess, in a certain way, companies are on top of that. Every company or most large companies do scenario exercises. The problem here is the complexity of the variables, I guess. You have eight trends, each of which probably has different calibrations. But as you combine these trends and think about different possible futures, what would be some of the scenarios that you'd be running if you were the CEO of a, of a major company? When I make presentations with CEOs or top managers in the audience, or I work with companies as a consultant, they always have the same reaction that uh, you uh, laid out at the beginning of our conversation, which is, oh, I, I have heard about that. Oh, I've also heard about that other thing that you're talking about. But at least in my experience, what they don't realize is that these things are coming together. And then what are the scenarios? Well, the scenarios, I think, all lead to the same place, which is, for me, and this is the most important learning point, I think, for businesses, don't think about geographies. Think about trends that are cutting across geographies, because technology is cutting across geographies. Population aging is cutting across geographies. The rise of this segment of consumers above the age of 60, right? So the highest growth markets in the world are not China and Vietnam and, uh, you know, whatever your favorite list of uh, emerging markets is. The fastest growing markets are women with money, people above the age of 60, <laughs> okay? And uh, other similarly defined sociodemographic segments of the market. When you ask me the question about scenarios, I think the really important thing is to switch the mindset there. And yes, try to see, anticipate what's going to happen, but not with geographies in the world, but rather with segments, with different kinds of consumers. So you've talked a little bit about some of the market shifts that these trends will cause, a shift in the education market, a shift in the retirement market, a, a shift in who's doing the buying and so on. What are the implications or some of the implications for business? And what I mean by that is, if we think about how business is structured, what businesses are for, how they conduct business, uh, mm -hmm. what the conventional wisdom of management is, what are some of the main secondary implications for how we do business? Well, that's a terrific question, Martin, because it's not just about what's going on in the market. It's what's going on inside businesses and how they're going to have to change their internal processes. Look, let me give you three examples. One is attracting and retailing talent. We know that talent in this knowledge-based economy is going to be really important. But again, I was mentioning earlier that we're going to go away from a situation in which we have three or four jobs during our lifetime to a situation in which maybe we pursue two or three careers, right, during our lifetime. So in other words, that we go back to school when we turn 40 because uh, whatever we learned uh, 20 years earlier has become obsolete because of technological change. So companies are going to have to adapt to that, you know, to having older workers being very productive and very creative. A lot of companies these days, once a worker turns 50, they want to get rid of him or her. So that's one big example in which I think businesses will have to change internally. Uh, the second, I think, is in terms of not making the assumption that what gave you success in the past is going to give you success in the future. Because once again, when you have so many things changing, right? And it is, uh, you know, there's a considerable degree of inertia. I think you know this better than anybody else, uh, given your background, right? Uh, which is that 
we tend to continue doing what we feel was successful in the past. And I think this is something that has to change in the DNA, in the organizational culture, because most likely when we're going through so many transformations, that's not going to be the case, right? And then one last uh, very quick example, adopting technology and deploying technology inside of the firm. Look, the biggest challenge is not to bring technology in. The biggest challenge is to combine that technology with the other resources or capabilities that a company has, including the employees, of course, and making it compatible with the organizational culture and so on and so forth. And, you know, what we're seeing is that a lot of companies, especially established ones, I'm talking about companies that have been around for a long time, they're having trouble incorporating online sales, or they're having trouble incorporating AI-based, artificial intelligence-based, or big data-based selection of employees and all that. And the reason is that the key to success is not just that picking and choosing the right technologies, it's integrating those technologies and making them compatible with the DNA of the organization of the company. So here specifically, I'm not talking about startups. I'm talking about the established companies. So let's assume that these trends will define the future and they get us to a totally different place and we buy all of your um, forecasts and presumptions on that front. I guess some CFOs might say, well, that's a decade out. And if I discount what's happening 10 years out, a 10%, that gives me, you know, a 10% mindshare for this uh, the thing you're talking about. But you make the case that now is the time the company should be uh, addressing and preparing for the new future. What would be your argument, your counter-argument? I think the counter-argument would be that the kinds of transformations we're going through now don't occur all the time. They don't occur every decade. I think we are witnessing the end of the world in which uh, you and I were born into, right? The world in which uh, we were educated. Uh, that world that, I guess, emerged uh, out of the ashes of World War II. So this is a, you know, the kind of transformation that happens only every 50, 60, 70, 80 years. And I think it would be extremely myopic to believe that you can just uh, kick the can down the road, if you allow me to use that expression, by saying, look, I mean, well, we will adapt and uh, in any event, uh, you know, it's okay, we can continue to make money over the next few years uh, doing things the way we're doing them. So I think one has to grasp the magnitude of what's going on and the potential implications. And by the way, in my experience with companies, I mean, as you know, many companies are engaged in five-year planning. And I think I have been able to persuade at least a, a couple of them that maybe they should engage in 10-year planning because precisely when so many things are changing, our human instinct is to focus on the short term. But the correct attitude is to, or perspective, is to focus on not just five years, but maybe 10 years down the road, because you need to anticipate what the future state of the world is going to be, right, in order to adjust to it. There's always a, a contradiction or a, a tension in any forecasting exercise in that we forecast to prepare for the future. And if we prepare for the future, then presumably we can act against forecasts and we can shape our fate. And so I wanted to ask you, which part of your eight trends and their outcomes seem close to inevitable, you know, people say that demographics is fate, for example, and which of them depend pretty much on how we respond to the underlying changes. I'm thinking of, for instance, climate change in cities. I mean, the fate of cities will probably depend on what cities do about climate change. How would you shade the list for degree of fatalism? And I think it's a little bit of both, right? So obviously the future is not predetermined, but there are certain trends that are larger than any company, any organization, any, any industry, right? And you have to accept that those trends are going on. But it is also, you know, absolutely the case that certain trends uh, can be addressed and then you can even try to uh, deflect them a little bit, maybe not reverse them, but certainly deflect them. Now, having said that, 
I think the more interesting aspect here is which companies can be trendsetters versus which companies have to accept the trends, right? They have to take the trends as they are and try to adapt to them and try to ride the wave uh, as if they were surfers. And uh, look, I mean, in my um, appreciation, and maybe some people would disagree with me, there's very few companies that are truly trendsetters. And most of uh, companies, however, they have to adjust. They have to adapt. Uh, they have to try to ride the wave as opposed to swim against uh, the stream. And so if that's the case, then once again, I think three simple steps. One is uh, study the trends, try to anticipate them. Number two is try to come up with a uh, an assessment as to what the world will look like in five years or seven years, whatever your time horizon you think uh, should be, and then take action. And normally action takes more than a couple of months or a couple of years. And again, I, I realize that short-termism is a very powerful force because uh, the markets uh, for publicly listed companies are always demanding short-term results. But I think that's, as Oscar Wilde used to say, that's a temptation that we have to persist, I think, especially during these times. Economists are interested in what will happen on average or in aggregate. And of course, competition and strategy is all about defying trends, being exceptions. And indeed, in the book, you say that these trends will cause bifurcations. Some will win, some will lose. What defines or what separates winners from losers in this changing context? For instance, you talk about lateral solutions, peripheral vision and other strategies. Mm -hmm. what, what is the profile of a winner and the profile of a loser? Let me answer the question with uh, three very basic points. Number one, I think the winners are the ones that don't deny that there is change, okay? Uh, and by the way, you can also apply that principle to the world of politics. As you know, there are politicians out there who are telling us, hey, there's no, <laughs> change is not happening, or we can go back uh, right to the past, we can turn the clock back. So the first thing is uh, not to deny what the reality seems to be telling us, right? That's the first step that, that differentiates uh, winners from losers. The second one is to do the homework, Right? I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, you have to go and understand the numbers and understand the trends and understand every detail of it as it may impact your industry, your markets, uh, your company, right? Number two. And then once again, number three, straight from the top of the organization must come a message that change is needed because something very simple, the only possible response to change is change itself. So if we assume as a given that there is change going on in the world right now, then the only possible organizational response is change. I'm wondering whether we see any change in the fabric of a company itself. I mean, we think of a company as a um, free market actor that addresses market needs and is primarily driven by economics. And more recently, that's been informed by a focus on purpose and corporate social responsibility. If we teach an MBA class in 10 years' time, will we be giving a very different picture of what a corporation is, how it acts, and what it's there for? Well, I think in the context of what's going on right now in the United States, in other parts of the world, I think that question has acquired a lot of urgency. We're going through a pandemic, which is a great accelerator of trends. I mean, this pandemic accelerates technology adoption, it accelerates population trends, the rise of emerging markets, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, it coincides, of course, with the economic recession and the mystery triggered by the shutdowns. And lastly, with um, you know frictions, uh, racial, ethnic, um, gender frictions that are not new, but that certainly the pandemic and that the crisis have uh, exacerbated. So I think uh, what you were describing in terms of how we should educate future generations of students, for example, about 
the company or the firm, its role in society, its role in the market, and what is expected of it. I think what we're going through right now just exacerbates precisely that trend towards essentially trying to define the role of the corporation in society in a more expansive way. That's what everyone is asking. And by the way, data on consumer behavior of the last few months clearly indicates that consumers are expecting brands not just to give them great products or services, but also to contribute to the uh, solution to some of these societal problems that we're facing. So the data are there, right? There's been a shift in opinion, for example, among consumers regarding how they view brands as a result of all of the problems that we're going through. So you give seven strategies, I think, that leaders should adopt to cope with this emerging future and uh, things like lose sight of the shore, you know, deliberately embrace embrace the future and experiment, start small, anticipate that some of the things you try will be dead ends and so on. So you have seven ways of adapting to the unfolding future. And you imply that many companies are not following these. And I'm wondering, why not? What are the obstacles? What obstacles have to be overcome in order to embrace the strategies that you lay out? Look, companies uh, are companies, but of course, uh, you have, at least so far, human beings making decisions. And we all know that we have our own biases, and those biases manifest themselves at the individual level. But they get even worse, as you know, when you are in our organizational context, because you can get into minds, uh, you know, uh, same-mindedness. You can get into all sorts of ways in which individual biases aggregate to make matters even worse, right? Because of whatever somebody says then gets expanded or magnified by the organizational context there in which uh, decisions are being made at companies. So I think it's really important to break with that inertia, those biases that we have. And and also, you know, to take care of these uh, human instincts that we have. Look, when we perceive that so many things are changing, right? when we perceive that, you know, it's like we're going through a big transformation, we tend to go to the extremes. We either freeze and we don't make any decisions because we're just scared, or we decide Let's take bold action. Let's reinvent the entire company. Let's just uh, transform ourselves from top to bottom, inside out. And I think those two extremes need to be avoided. That would be, for me, like one way of summarizing those uh, seven principles that you referred to are in the last few pages of the book. And I think it all boils down to, if you want to even simplify the message further, it all boils down to one very simple thing, which is in times such as this, when everything is out of whack and you don't know where the pieces are going to fall, What you need to do is avoid making irreversible decisions. Don't make a decision that you cannot correct in real time later, depending on how the things, uh, how the environment evolves. Don't drive yourself into a corner, into a, a dead end. You need to make decisions, so don't freeze. But at the same time, don't make decisions that are so irreversible that you can get into even more trouble than you were in the beginning. So I'd like to go on, Mara. It's a fascinating and deep subject, but I just permit myself one last question. You wrote the book largely before COVID, but you added a postscript on the pandemic. As I read it, your main point was that the pandemic actually accelerates the future, brings it forward, accelerates the changes. Could you explain to us why that's your view? Yes, that's exactly right. This pandemic is very different from, example, the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic. It's very different from other large-scale economic crises that we've had, including the Great Depression or the uh, big crisis in the 1970s. It's a crisis that, for the most part, accelerates pre-existing trends. I mean, I think there's a couple of exceptions. For example, cities 
you know, in Europe and the United States, maybe people will think twice about living downtown. They might prefer to live more outside, especially in the context of uh, social distancing and remote work. But for the most part, you know, the demographic trends, the rise of emerging markets, the use of technology, all of those things are getting accelerated by this pandemic and by the crisis triggered by the pandemic. And so, you know, my only regret about the book is that instead of 2030 as the title, I should have chosen 2028, precisely for the reason that you mentioned, which is that the pandemic, the crisis we're in is accelerating things. So the future that I describe in the book is actually arriving faster rather than more slowly. I've been speaking with Mauro Glien, who is the Professor of International Management at the Wharton School about his new book, 2030, How Today's Big Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything, which was published in August 2020 by St. Martin's Press. A great read. I strongly recommend it. I I think it's applicable to all businesses. And I just want to thank you again, Mara, for joining me. And uh, congratulations already on the uh, many achievements of the the book. And uh, I hope that it continues to go well. Thank you so very much uh, for having me on your podcast.